0: Welcome to Pound the Rock, The Score's NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfond, and I'm joined,
1: as always, by my co-host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. What a morning in basketball here in Toronto. Joe Wolfond, we found out that 2019 NBA champion, 2020 coach of the year, right? Nick Nurse is out of a job, although he won't be for long. Pretty, Pretty stunning stuff. Plus, we've got some great playoff basketball to talk about where do you want to start you're the host today yeah so as we kind
0: of mentioned last week we were not going to be able to hit every series in one episode it would have just gotten too bloated so we basically hit on half the series last time out and we're going to try and get to the other half this time although we'll have probably some assorted thoughts on a couple of the series that we talked about on Tuesday's episode but I guess, yeah, we should probably start with the Nick Nurse situation, which is certainly not a shock. Yeah. Right? Like This has been out there in the ether for a while. You don't even really have to be an adept tea leaf reader to uh, have seen this coming, just given the Raptors disappointing season, the kind of crossroads that they're at. And then, you know, on top of that, just everything that has been out there in the public sphere, like with Nick himself kind of stoking the flames with some unprompted comments about him potentially wanting to reassess his future. He had one year left on his deal. The sides obviously hadn't been able to come to an agreement on an extension. And there had been burblings about his mutual interest in a job with the Rockets, which... You know he he has history with that organization dating back to his time with the Rio Grande Valley Vipers of the G League. So,
1: yeah, and I'm sure is, he admires James Harden.
0: We're not going there today, but that that story just won't go away, huh? It's like yeah, there's, uh, there's got to be some fire there with all the smoke, but
1: the, well, that's what I was going to say, and I, I don't want to go into a tangent about how James Harden's going back to the Rockets, but what I often say as part of our jobs covering the league, is that sometimes there is too much smoke for there not to be fire, especially when you consider where the smoke is coming from. And I get that, look, there are plenty of reports every year, whether it's trade rumors or potential free agency rumors that don't come to fruition. But I would say that generally speaking, when you're talking about the very top tier and the most trusted sources of NBA news, whether it's Wode Shams, like the top two to five people, that you consider newsbreakers and really sourced up and um, plugged in in the NBA. When those people continue to put the same thing out there that seems kind of random and out of nowhere, oftentimes it ends up being true. And this was one of those times where like when Woj first came out and had the report about, I think it was Woj, I can't remember now, that, you know, Harden is seriously looking at a a houston return and then within like a few i think it was like a week after that that nick nurse would might be at like leave toronto and go to houston and then not too long after that the udoka to toronto stuff coming out and he stayed pretty consistent with it not that it's going to be a 100 percent, but i just think sometimes it's like okay that is a very random out of nowhere thing to all of a sudden be reported by the NBA's foremost newsbreaker and he stayed pretty committed to the bit for a few months now and even immediately after the announced the Raptors announcement that Nurse is gone well which again you know reiterates he will be the I don't know if he said the front runner but in heavy consideration for Rockets' job already talking about Udoka again in Toronto so sometimes I think it is just easy to be like all right like if, if these specific people are saying this for this long and it was something that was like seemed so out of nowhere a few months ago there's a lot of smoke there for there not to end up being a wildfire. So as much as, yeah, I agree with you. We don't have to get into the Harden stuff today. I'm starting to get to the point where I'm like, I'm just starting to think this is what's going to happen. Harden's going back to Houston, whether you can explain it to yourself or not. Nurse will be there with him and Udoka will be in Toronto.
0: Yeah, look, I'm sorry. I have no interest in speculating about any of this right now. It, all of that will come and we'll figure out what's real and what's not. I I am more interested in seeing sort of what this means for the Raptors in terms of their vision moving forward. Is it a sign of something like a soft rebuild? Are they just looking to go in a different direction in terms of the type of personality that they hire as a coach in terms of like their stylistic uh, elements? Like I think it's interesting for what it says about how they see this thing turning around and whether they feel like that's going to be a short-term fix, a long-term fix. I have my opinions on that situation and what I think is required there, but that's not really what we're here to talk about. I think ultimately you can, qu- you can quickly share it. You can- don't tease the people and then not. I just don't think that there's enough short-term upside there to to make that the kind of roadmap forward. I agree. At the same time, they've backed themselves into a corner a little bit because. Of this very lightly protected first round pick that they traded in the 2024 draft. I know people are saying it's like a weak draft class and that shouldn't be a huge deal. But if it is going to look something like a rebuild, then that's going to be tough to kickstart next year when they don't have their own draft pick unless they're prepared to be so bad that they can assure themselves of staying in the top six in the lottery, which is going to be really
1: difficult to do. Yeah, because you can finish with a bottom three or four record and still end up outside the top six. So like, I, you know, but maybe finishing
0: they- with a bottom three or four record is hard,
1: man. Like there no, are some really bad for- teams in the league that are committed to losing right now. That- That's what I was going to say. First of all, you can look at teams this year who probably thought they were aiming, like had very good chances of being bottom three or four and didn't. Second of all, in addition to how hard it is to purposely even finish bottom three or four, you can do that and still end up outside the top six if the lottery really goes haywire. So I just don't think that can be a strategy. And if that can't be a strategy, I don't know what they do because I'm with you in that the short term upside is hard to capitalize on. I think this whole thing is interesting just because even though I don't think either one of us is surprised that nurse is gone based on the way this season went and especially the way it kind of like ended and with nurses comments, like unprompted comments about thinking about his future. Like he seemed like he had one foot out the door by the end, you know, in fairness to him, he probably thought he had one hand tied behind his back for most of this season with the front office's failure to upgrade and, and address some of the roster issues coming into the season. But regardless, I just think it's really telling. And I don't know what it says either a about nurse or at least about how the organization viewed nurse or, or maybe on both sides, how the relationship had disintegrated. But I do it says something to me that four years after winning the title, and really, this being the first truly bad nurse year, I would say in his five year head coaching tenure, like Tampa, I'm sure there were things to gripe about. But Everyone acknowledges, you know, Raptors president, Masai Ujiri included, that that was just such a lost season. I think it says something that one bad year into a five-year head coaching tenure with a championship and a coach of the year as part of that was enough to undo it all. I don't think that that's entirely accurate in terms of the
0: framing. Like, I in what get way. that, like, he's been super successful. I mean, he rung, I think, pretty much every little drop Out of last year's team that he could have, and there were diminishing returns to their style of play this year. The way they tried to win by gaming out the possession battle, all that stuff. I think the roster limitations are clearly a much bigger issue. They they need to figure those roster issues out first and foremost. Like there needs to be some kind of rebalancing if they are going to continue to try and win in the here and now. But I also don't think that it was just this one season that kind of altered everything in terms of their relationship with nurse. Like I think there were certain things going on there in terms of like his personality, his relationships with players that could be papered over when the team was winning that are obviously a lot harder to, to mask when things aren't going the way that anybody within the organization hoped or, or wanted them to. So that's where uh, I kind of stand with that, but we'll, we'll have more time to talk about the Raptors in the off season. They have a very interesting off season ahead. They've tacked on now this coaching search to their, you know, litany of free agency decisions. And yeah, I really am curious to see Masai Ujiri is going to talk to the media literally five minutes from now. So
1: Wolfon and I are missing it strictly to bring you, our loyal listeners, this podcast entertainment. Last thing I'll say, and it's not necessarily even nurse specific or Raptor specific, but reminder number 5,382 that if you're an NBA fan or a sports fan in general, Enjoy the good times when you're in them, man, (laughs) because success in general, but in pro sports especially, and in the NBA especially these days, is so fleeting, shorter contracts, a lot of player movement, especially right now with some unprecedented parity in the league. You have a run like the Raptors had. You better enjoy every second of it because it is very fleeting. And before you know it, you're on the other end of things, and now you're the team seemingly stuck in a holding pattern and not really knowing how to get out of it. And there's other teams quickly passing you by. And a couple of years ago, three years ago, heck, even last year, the Raptors are still one of the league's darlings and, and, you know, most successful franchises over the last decade, not saying that can't continue, but it's a lot harder to pull off now. And not okay. just for Raptors fans, all, all fans enjoy success and the good times when you're in them. Okay. So we we did have a couple of games last night from
0: sorry i got we got to move on from this this is enough talk of a team that is not relevant to what is going on on the basketball court at present the nba playoffs yeah
1: cuz people um, want to hear about Celtics hawks which we're actually not going to talk about
0: nobody wants to hear about Celtics hawks and we're that's the one series i feel like that we're just i'm sorry i'm sorry to the hawks i'm sorry to the Celtics we'll have plenty of time to talk about the Celtics yeah. but i just don't find anything particularly interesting about that series right you now you also did promise to
1: not talk about the hawks at all in uh, what march or, no yeah, February. I, I think it was around I, for- you- I forgot about that um, i like that you're committing to the bit i'm with well, you i don't, we, we spent- hawks. I you don't want to talk i don't want to talk hawks celtics either trust me Good. no we're, 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 we're on the same page
0: we've spent a lot of time talking about the hawks during the regular season like too much time talking about what was ultimately a middling team so they had their airtime on this show they've been a vexing team that's another team that i think is going to be pretty interesting come off season but for right now, I just think they are too overmatched. And we can talk about, you know, at some point, how impressed we have been with how the Celtics have played. Derek White, he's been unbelievable. Tatum, just ruthless mismatch hunting in that series. And I think Atlanta is very much drawing dead. So we're going to leave that one aside. couple of games last night in series that we have already talked about that probably bear some mention here. I know you had some thoughts on the <laughs> Sixers-Nets game last night. <laughs> That included not one, but two shots to the groin from 76ers, one of which I thought was very much unintentional, and one of which seemed extremely intentional, and yet the unintentional shot below the belt is the one that got punished with a flagrant two and an ejection in what seemed to me to be the first flagrant two makeup call that I can remember seeing in an NBA game, so... What were your thoughts on Game Three in Brooklyn last night? Cash, the Sixers are up three nothing in a series that we both thought and continue to
1: think, I imagine, is going to be a sweep. Yeah, we both said we thought it was the biggest mismatch in the first round in terms of the the Embiid hard and ejection, not ejection, I just personally, I think it's hilarious. If you're not, if you're a Nets fan or Jacques Vaughn, you clearly don't believe so. But I'm sorry, in the wake of the week the NBA just had with the Draymond Green stuff, and I know how much of that was about him being a repeat offender. I get it, but Embiid's kind of a repeat offender. Not at the same level Draymond is, obviously, but I think there's a little bit of a reputation there with Embiid too. And yeah, did Claxton egg him on a little bit and, and add fuel to the fire by stepping over him? Yes. I think his defense would be if you watch the highlight that preceded it, Embiid makes contact with him in midair. That is a little dangerous, but anyway. Claxon goes to step over him. And Bede, to me, very clearly intentionally then tries to kick him in the nuts, or if not, then at least just kick him in general while he was standing over him and avoids suspension. Sorry, avoids ejection after what (laughs) happened with Draymond this week when Draymond was ejected for stomping and suspended. And then, yeah, to your point, clearly, in my opinion, the the first flagrant two makeup call with James Harden. You know, trying to get a little space. You, you can even have given it a flagrant one, even though I don't think it was intentional, just because you can say, look, it ended up with contact to the groin area. Maybe you treat it like when there's contact to the head. It's like, look, you got to be in control of your body. Even if it's not intentional, you have to be penalized. Fine. But to inject him for that when, you know what, an hour earlier you had decided that indeed kicking Claxton in the nuts wasn't worth an injection, I think was hilarious. And then to me, the most hilarious part about it was Embiid's comments after the game. I'm not sure if you saw this, but I, I just wanted to read them because it actually made me cackle. So after the game, Embiid was talking about how you could tell that the, the Nets game plan was to try to frustrate him so that he would do something to get himself ejected. But then his comments are, but I'm too mature to put myself in a position where I'm going to be ejected. So I just went about my business and we got the win. Look, Embiid, that is hilarious to me because... I think we're both in agreement that what he did easily could have warranted an injection. So it, it just made me laugh that then after the game, he like knowing he did that, his comments were still, they tried to frustrate me so I would do something to get ejected, but I'm too mature to stoop to that level. It's like, wow, well, you kind of did. You just got bailed out. Okay. By the refs, yeah. Also, Joel Embiid,
0: known paragon of maturity, who loves to do the crotch chop every time he embarrasses the team and gets an and one. Oh my
1: god! Uh, and listen, anyway, and and you like issues with Embiid I may have aside. I I love the entertainment factor. I listen. You want to do the dx crotch chop? Do it, man. Whatever. If, if you get fine, take the fine. I but just have a little self awareness. Anyway, the the
0: Nets wound up. You know, going on a bit of a second-half run after Harden got ejected, led for most of the second half, but the Sixers pulled it out down the stretch, thanks in large part to Tyrese Maxey, who continues to elevate, man. Harden goes out. He kind of takes over as, like, a lead on-ball creator, proving that he can do that on top of his unbelievable off-ball scoring chops. And he carried them over the finish line. I, I just think one of the most interesting and exciting storylines for me going into the second round. I know we're like looking way ahead here, but I just cannot wait to see how he fares against Boston because in terms of the defensive vulnerabilities, and it's something I wrote about, you know, I wrote a whole piece this week about how increasingly I find these kind of in between guards, these like high scoring combo guards who are vulnerable defensively to be some of the biggest postseason x-factors year after year after year because they are destined to get hunted at the defensive end and that just raises the bar for their offense to such a high level like it's sink or swim you got to see if they're up for kind of clearing that bar if they can give you enough offensively if they can find a way to survive defensively to continue being a net positive positive. and i think in this round like brooklyn just doesn't have the goods to really exploit maxi's defensive limitations and I also think, like, they're, they're a defensively versatile team, but especially in terms of the way that they are defending Joel Embiid and maxley being, as we've said in the past, designed in a lab essentially to be a, a second-side attacker who's, like, destroying scrambling defenses when they're forced to be put in rotation. Uh, I think there, there are going to be fewer of those opportunities against a, Cel- a Celtics defense that doesn't necessarily have to load up in the same kind of way. So against, you know, Boston's size and speed and switchability and against their ability to kind of hunt mismatches on the other end of the floor, I'm really curious to see what that looks like for Maxi in round two. That's that's where the rubber is going to meet the road for him.
1: And in general, I'm not saying the winner of that assumed series would win will win the championships, but that is a championship level series in the second round. That's going to be an absolute heavyweight matchup, and I can't wait to watch it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So do, do you have any more thoughts quickly on on that series? Or No,
1: you know, I think we can. Pretty, I think well, we can move on.
0: pretty well done and dusted. Um, yeah, I just think, look, I, I honestly feel like the Nets have done a really good job defensively for the most part, but they just don't have enough offensive options, I don't think, to... I mean, maybe they can squeeze out a, a game in Game 4. They've been competitive, at least, in the last couple of games. And kudos to them for that. But like the Hawks, I just feel like they're drawing dead in that matchup. Uh, I'm th- sorry,
1: and I was going to say, like the Hawks and Raptors, also an interesting offseason ahead, but probably a more promising feel to it.
0: Yeah, and as you, as you have mentioned a couple of times before, team that is sort of ripe for potentially a superstar trade, they have the pieces to get it done. I think the... Now, the question will be, what will be left over if they do sort of find the superstar trade that they feel like they're ready to make or want to make? Is there going to be enough infrastructure left there to to support that incoming star? Because right now, really, they have what is like the perfect setup, like the perfect supporting cast. That would be more if like they had max cap space exactly. and a, a star free agent in mind that they wanted to bring in. But to send a bunch of those pieces out in order to get a star would make things a little bit more tenuous, I think.
1: Yeah. And as I said, the reason I find their situation so unique is because even from like the, should they be competitive right away or not standpoint, you can say, look, they're they're still kind of young. They have room to grow and they have all this draft capital. They've got time, but then you got to remember the other side of it that not, and very little of that draft capital is their own because their picks belong to Houston. So there is incentive to actually be good immediately. And then on the flip side, you can say, yeah, so it all makes sense. They are they're they should be making a star trade. They've got all these assets, but they need to be good. But the flip side to that is I don't know how much they they do want to mortgage their future again after doing it twice in the last decade. And I don't know how much of a stomach they have for getting into bed, for lack of a better term, with another superstar that might somewhat take the franchise hostage. That's a bad way to put it, but I think you know what I mean after what they went through with Katie and Kyrie. I think if the right move is there, obviously you make it, but they probably more than other franchises might have a little bit of reservations about gutting their team to give a superstar everything. I think that makes a
0: lot of sense. Uh, Okay. So the Warriors get one back in game three at home, played way better at home, just as we knew they would because they've been doing it all year. Even with no Draymond, even without Gary Payton the second, so obviously Draymond got the suspension. GP two was out with an illness, and yet that Warriors defense completely smothered the Kings in that game. A big part of it was the Kings just like couldn't buy a three. Yeah, I, what did they finish like eleven for forty five in the end? Something insane yeah. like that. And but, also,
1: Quan Looney did his best Draymond impression. What he finish with four, four or five points, twenty rebounds, nine assists. There's yeah, another four, rebounds, four and twenty uh, on four yeah. twenty. Yeah, oh, perfect. I didn't even think Um,
0: about then Nine offensive rebounds, nine assists. I mean, look, so part of this is just what's been going on with the Warriors and their home road splits all season. Suddenly they get home, like they're taking way better care of the basketball. They're just not making those boneheaded turnovers and gifting the Kings, you know, like 8, 10, 12 additional fast break opportunities every game because they're kicking it around. Some of that, I will say, and this is not about like, you know, The Warriors are not better without Draymond, make no mistake about that, but he's one of the chief offenders in terms of their sky-high turnover rate. That's because they run a lot of their offense through him in the high post. He's the one who's being asked to orchestrate and initiate from the top. He's making high-risk passes, and that's leading to a lot of turnovers, especially the turnovers at the top of the floor that we talk about all the time as being so, so damaging, and without him there... It's just like they're running a little bit more through their guards, the balls in Steph's hands a little bit more. It's a little bit more high pick and roll. And that is simplifying things to the point that I feel like they're able to take better care of the basketball. I also think in terms of just opening things up for the Warriors offense a bit, not playing those lineups with both Draymond and Looney on the floor kind of made it harder for the Kings to actually defend the Warriors, fewer places to help off of and, In terms of just like the basic, like Looney can't replicate what Draymond can do on the whole as a playmaker, but just in terms of those short roll passing decisions, he's been pretty good at that for a while. And that's the thing that he can kind of approximate in terms of just like catching the ball in the pocket, having a four on three, mapping the floor and making the right pass. And that's how you come up with those nine assists, right? Like whether you're spraying it out to shooters or what the Warriors really love to do is have those guys cutting out of the corner when the guy's forced to come over and tag on the backside of a hedge, they they were just picking that apart all night. And Looney was able to make the right play in the middle of the floor. So you couple that with the fact that they completely flipped the offensive rebounding battle on its head, you know, after getting crushed on their own glass in the first couple of games, they were really the enforcers on the offensive glass. And this one, I think finished the game with 18 in total. And as mentioned, Looney had nine of those. So Interested to see what happens when Draymond comes back. Like, I wonder if they look to go with more of a stagger to kind of get to that offensive setup where they don't have the two non-spacers on the floor at the same time. So that's, that's that series. And we've got a couple of series going tonight. We might as well talk... Knicks Cavs first, <laughs> since if you're listening to this, you know, that's the, the game you're going to be watching tonight. That's the one where things are going to change. So we might as well get that part out of the way earlier in the episode. And, you know, maybe the, the few minutes will make a difference. And you can listen to this before everything surely changes again in game three. But wondering your thoughts, Cash, on the kind of seesaw nature of those first couple games, the adjustments Cleveland made. The potential counter adjustments the Knicks can make. One-one series going back to MSG. What do you think?
1: Uh, first of all, really excited for game three, just because I think MSG should be popping. It should come. Not that we're gonna be there, but it should be a great atmosphere that we can hear on TV. But um I think what's interesting to me is something we thought would be an issue for the Cavs at some point and has been an issue for a lot of the season, is like that fifth starter spot, the small four spot, the the kind of huge question mark they've had there all year, beside this very High level elite big four, like our top four. I thought it would be a problem for them. It would catch up to them and would be the reason, you know, they couldn't compete with the Bostons, the Milwaukees, Philly, probably. But I don't know if I thought it would be this much of an issue immediately, like in the first round against a team like the Knicks. And very quickly, it was an issue to the point where Okoro starts the first two games. Did he even make it to? I don't think he played. He played two minutes and 47. He played less than three minutes of game two. Mm-hmm. And the Cavs found success with Lavert. Obviously, he also just had, you know, a, a crazy game. I don't know how much the Cavs can expect with 27 points in 30 to 40 minutes from Lavert. But Lavert, Danny Green, who, in case people forgot, is on the Cleveland Cavaliers now and is giving them something. Osman, who's giving them something, but also is questionable for game three with an ankle injury. I think that's been a big part of the turnaround from game one and two is them finding some contributions from a fifth, or I guess in this case, a fifth to seventh guy. Um, so I, I do wonder, like, do you think they could do they not start a coro now in game three? Like, is he just out of the rotation going forward, but barring some other change. Um, and then in terms of the adjustment side, definitely seemed like there was more pressure being put on the ball on Brunson in game two than there was on game one. And that really mucked up the Knicks offense because look, the the Randall thing, I mean, we're I think we're both in the same boat where it's like, we're not necessarily fans of, definitely not aesthetically of his game, but we also gave him his due for what was, you know, whether we like how he got to it or not, he, he had a tremendous season for a good Knicks team. But the same issue still existed in terms of what make it concerning if he's one of your top two guys. And I think with the pressure on Brunson and a guy like Randall or even a Barrett now expected to do more, I think you are seeing the limitations of this Knicks team, especially on the offensive end. So I guess my question to you then would be, what do you think the counter is for New York? Because at a certain point, like your guys are your guys, like Julius Randle and RJ Barrett, I don't think are going to miraculously become good enough, like offensive carriers to mitigate the effects of the Cavs trying to take Brunson out of it. Or maybe what do you think is a counter that the Knicks can go to, to potentially free up Brunson. If the Cavs do want to put this much on ball pressure on them.
0: Uh, I think doing a little bit more of what the Cavs did in that game too, just like guard, guard action, you know, like, honestly, Mitchell and Garland and Lavert, like all those guys are working their tails off defensively. So I don't want to frame it as like, yeah, you can just like attack those guys, put them in action and you're golden. But I think in terms of the way the Cavs are defending it with those blitzes, it's making it really difficult when, they're using Mitchell Robinson as their primary ball screener because to take it back to another conversation we had a few weeks back, like you may remember this. Our listeners may remember we were having a conversation that I wound up spinning into a story just about how across the league I was seeing all of these guys, even centers in what you would deem to be like the screen and dive mold building out their ball skills and specifically like their playmaking skills. And that I, I was mentioning that in relation to like Jared Allen and Nick Claxton, just guys that you would typically imagine to be like straight up rim runners and dive men who can actually like make plays on the short roll, make plays as, like dribble handoff hubs and like create a little bit of their own offense. And in the piece that I wound up writing about it, I spotlighted guys who haven't been able to build out those skills. And one of them was Mitchell Robinson. And I think what we saw a few times in that game is like, If he is the release valve, everything is just stalling out. You're not getting any of the advantage playing on the backside of the trap, even when you break it and should have a four on three because those windows close so fast. And if you're not processing it quickly, if you're not making those decisions fast enough, then the advantage completely disappears. And it's just a reset and you've taken all this time off the clock and suddenly you're up against it. And the possession comes down to like a Randall ISO or a Barrett ISO, like, That became a big issue. So I think just focusing more maybe on doing some of the guard guard actions, maybe using Randall more as a ball screener, or if you want to use Mitchell Robinson, you can go with a little bit more of like, uh, what's called a roll and replace where you can have Robinson set the screen. He's still diving to the rim, but he's not actually the release valve for the pass out of the trap. Randall is lifting to like around the nail area. And so you're still getting the role with Mitchell Robinson, but then it's Randall who's actually catching the ball with the ability to make the play in space. And they actually did do that a few times in the second half of game two with not a ton of success. But I think that's, you can find ways to kind of mitigate Robinson's inability to be like a connective playmaker. So there are a few ways they can do that and I expect them to be better. But like to your point, it's also about the other guys being able to like pick up some of the slack and Barrett is a huge one. He's six for 25 from the field in the first two games of this series. Like there's so much talk about, you know, the Knicks being able to help off of a helping way off of him in the strong side corner, just completely mucking up all the middle pick and rolls that the Cavs tried to run. And that sort of, I'm not saying it ignored the fact, but like it it overshadowed the fact that like, man, the, the Knicks have a bunch of wings that the Cavs can help off of too. And none more so than Barrett right now. And so if he continues to be unable to, you know, not only shoot the ball, but like attack advantage, you know, catch the ball against a rotating defense and like make really decisive moves, get to the rim and finish there. That's going to be a huge issue. And that's going to force the Knicks, I think to scale back his minutes And roll with like Hart, Quentin Grimes. Like those guys aren't exactly knockdown shooters either, but they are decisive. And when they catch the ball, it's like they can be on top of the rim in a second because of how well they're able to, you know, attack closeouts, put the ball on the floor, operate with a lot of pace in the half court. And then quickly as well, right? Who I picked him as sixth man of the year during the regular season. He's been awful through these first couple of games. And he's a a huge and crucial potential release valve as well that needs to bring again, a lot of that pace in the half court. They fed off of that during the regular season. And that just hasn't been there in these first couple of games. So I kind of do expect those guys to play better at home. I expect the Knicks offense to look a lot better in game three than it looked in game two, but this is a rock fight, man, with a lot of these adjustments and counter adjustments. Like to your question, I sort of do expect a to keep starting. Like I, I expect him to start in game three. If it's another rough one for him where the, you know, he can't punish the Knicks for how aggressively they're helping off of him. That might be it. But I don't think Lavert was amazing in game two, but we know he runs hot and cold. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't think they have just like found the answer to this issue because I still think a is their best individual option to throw at Brunson. And I, you know, if Lavert's not giving you the kind of offense he gave you in that game, which he just not, he's just not going to give you every single time, then uh, they're going to wind up back where they started, where, you know, it's like, can we survive offensively with the Coro on the floor? Can we survive defensively if it's Chetty Osman and he's like our primary on Brunson? Any way you slice it, it's kind of not ideal. But I do think they obviously looked a lot better with Lavert out there not just able to space the floor better for them, but able to be the screener and pick and roll because that that's what the Cavs did, right? Like they just ran pick and roll at Brunson almost every time down. They put him in action. The Knicks are hedging that to try and stay out of the switch. And the Cavs were playing out of that. And like, that's how they really got going. Like Garland, especially popped off after a quiet game one. And, you know, I thought, I thought it was great. The Cavs made it a point to get him going and make him more central to the offense. Like, Mitchell really took a back seat and allowed that to happen. He finished with 13 assists and only 13 shooting possessions, I think, in the game. I think he deserves a lot of credit for, for making that adjustment to, to help get his backcourt mate going. So yeah, we, we saw they had a ton of success with the small, small actions, and, and maybe the Knicks will lean harder on that too. Let's take a break there. We'll come back. We'll talk a little bit about Kawhi Leonard, about Suns Clippers, and a bit about Nuggets Wolves.
1: What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out The Score's fantasy football podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download The Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show.
0: Okay, Cash, we want to try and get out of here in under an hour. So let's see how quickly we can get through these other two series in the West. Obviously just a huge bummer that Kawhi, after looking like peak playoff Kawhi through games one and two, was unable to play in game three due to
1: a knee sprain. A knee yeah. strain? What was the no, diagnosis? I think it was a sprain and a sprain. not on the same not the same leg that he tore the ACL on. Right. But I guess that would make it the same leg that he had the quad tend tendon off. Right. right? <laughs> I don't know. I've I've, I've lost track. track. Of Kawhi. As right. I tweeted yesterday, the the Kawhi PG era Clippers or the Clippers General are like the Luke Wilson's character in Anchorman. When he's already missing one arm and then a grizzly bear bites his other arm off. And uh, and he says, this is getting to be goddamn ridiculous. That really is the Clippers in the Kawhi PG era. Because, man, how many times can one or both of these guys get hurt? Like, it's it's really insane. And it, it is, a, like, yeah, you said it. It's a bummer because... Can Can we just take a second to marvel at that performance that Kawhi put together in In Game game 2 on a strained knee? Right, because he apparently (laughs) suffered the injury in Game 1 and played through it in Game 2. So, yeah, like it... Oh, man, it's, it's just ridiculous. His excellence had given them a chance in a series without Paul George against a team that a lot of people think is the championship favorite. And to the Clippers' credit, they still looked competitive without either of Kawhi or Paul George... In game three, I was saying it reminds me of the last time KD matched up with the Clippers in the playoffs in 2019 when it was, you know, arguably the most talented team ever assembled when he was on the Warriors and they played a starless Clippers team in the first round and the Clippers were still a pain in their ass. Remember they had that game where they came back from what was it like 29 down to win? I think the Warriors ended up winning that series in five, six at the most, but six, six, right. But it was like way more of a dogfight than anyone thought it would be. And I'm sure maybe if you're like a, a Russell Westbrook fan, you might you know, roll your eyes at me saying this is the same thing because it's a, K- a KD-led almost super team against a starless Clippers team. But at this point in Westbrook's career, as good as he's been, like that is a pretty much a starless team. And for them to at least hang in the fight the way they did against the Suns in game three is admirable. But two, I think it also revealed some cracks in the Suns' foundation. And I shouldn't even say revealed cracks in the foundation because it was things that I was already concerned about. About with them and and whether these things would potentially hinder them from achieving the success a lot of people think they can achieve this spring. And that's, you know, one, Chris Paul looking creaky after look, game one, he looked amazing. But this is the thing with being a whatever he is now, 37-year-old undersized guard with all those minutes on his body, is like he can't be same old Chris Paul every night anymore. And then the DeAndre Ayton stuff, again, just him and his inability to consistently get the most out of what should be obvious advantages, whether it's, you know, uh, abusing a switch or just a size mismatch in general. You see it sometimes, but it, you don't see it enough. And if he could just do that consistently, I think the Suns would be a lot more home free given talent elsewhere. And, you know, it, it'll it'll definitely be enough, I'd say, to beat the Clippers, especially if Kawhi's not 100% or doesn't play. But I do think if... You're a Suns fan, there should be concern there about whether they can win the whole damn thing with Chris Paul at this stage of his career and with DeAndre Ayton still being what he is and what he isn't. Yeah, I mean, with Ayton, it's like,
0: I think of it a little bit the way that I think about like the Towns thing in Minnesota. And I'm not comparing them as players, like I think Towns is way, way more skilled, but It's similar to my eye in that is like equal parts on the player and on the team where with Aiton, there are just so many times that he does not play with nearly enough force. He gets deterred by smaller players in his path at the rim. When I feel like he could power through them, he doesn't go up strong and he goes for these like finesse finishes. He shies away from contact. It was that play that everybody spotlighted in. I want to say the second quarter last night where You know, he catches the ball like inside the restricted circle and it's just Batum between him and the basket. It's like, go up and dunk it. But instead he goes to this little hook shot and Batum sends it back. So a lot of that's on him. And then a lot of it is just on the Suns, like not really looking for him. And you could say like, why would they look for him if they know that he's not going to go up with force? But I still think there are times and opportunities that they eschew to kind of get him involved, whether it's on the backside of switches, whether it's like as, you know, somebody flashing into the dunker spot and open underneath the rim. I mean, I thought when the Clippers went to that, like, micro ball is not even strong enough to describe the lineup that they played at the end of that game. Like, that was nano ball. That was
1: Lilliputian ball, Cash. It was, wow. Let me fireupdictionary.com here. You <laughs> What would you say? Lilliputian? Lilliputian, man. I have never heard that word in
0: my life. Jonathan Swift, Gulliver's Travels? Come on. Okay. Uh, it Joe, Joe Wolf
1: on Word of the Day. Bones Highland. Still, still hoping for that Oxford or uh, Webster sponsorship, by the way, on Pound the Rock.
0: We're, we're Lilliputian. A
1: little... <laughs> Trivial or very small.
0: The, the Lilliputians in Gulliver's Travels were just a very, very tiny race of people. Anyway, what what was the lineup? It was Russ, Bones, Norm, yeah. Gordon, and Terrence Mann. 6'5", Terrence Mann, functionally playing center. Although, at the time, when they first rolled... was ro- too big for that lineup? When they first rolled that lineup out, the Suns were actually playing KD at the five, and Russ was guarding KD. And he was also like the one in in the four-out, one-in setup. So Russ was functionally playing center in some of those groups. And then when Ayton came in, it was Terrence Mann guarding him. And look, the Suns scored pretty much at will against that lineup. Like, Booker was able to get to the rim no problem. He was putting Bones in pick and roll action, like blowing past him and getting to the rim. And there's no resistance there, no way to stop him. So it's, like, hard to quibble too much with the Suns' offensive process against that lineup. But the level of neglect, like their complete unwillingness to even consider passing Aiton the ball with those ridiculous size mismatches that he had it was like one of the most
1: disrespectful things i've seen on a basketball court honestly (laughs) this conversation reminds me exactly and listen i know offensive skill comparison wise this is not a comparison but the conversation we're having reminds me exactly the conversations we used to have about the jazz and Gobert, where it's like how do you not give him the ball in certain situations and then you know you can also understand it from the other side it's like oh yeah that's why Again, well, listen, again, come on. Aiton is way more offensively skilled than Rudy yes. Gobert. But I'm saying, does the conversation not remind you of ones we had with Gobert and the Jazz? Like, No, the conversation does. But the point about Aiton being way, way more skilled offensively yeah. than Gobert matters. Maybe Maggrey, that just makes it more frustrating then. Because get the, job, the damn job done, DeAndre. But there's only so much he can... He's not bringing the ball up the floor. Like,
0: somebody has to pass it to him at a certain point right. in time. Fine, but at a and certain... Point. No, I know. He has to do more with the opportunities he's given, without without a doubt, but still. like, I
1: cram on Nicholas Batum, for Christ's sakes.
0: Um, anyway, so I found their inability to kind of put that team away last night a little bit troubling. I yeah. think you could also chalk some of that up to just like their effort level and not taking that version of the Clippers entirely seriously. But I also think that we have seen, like if Kawhi just can come back and play game four, I think Clippers have a great chance to win that game. Like they have proven they can hang with the Suns team when Kawhi is healthy. A, because he's just playing at like a preposterous level when he's out there on the floor, you know, knee injury or not. And B, because I think the Clippers have shown that they have some defensive answers for the Suns. And some of the things that we talked about and worried about with the Suns team have shown through. Not as much last game, because in terms of like, say shot profile like that's one thing we pointed to and in game 1 when phoenix lost it was 19 threes against like 57 mid-range jump shot attempts that was a problem in in game 3 last night they got up to 27 threes they were getting a lot more in the paint and you know the the lineup that the clippers rolled out to finish that game had a lot to do with it but more threes 46 free throw attempts like that that wasn't as big of an issue. And then like defensive rebounding, which was also an issue for them in game one, was not at all an issue for them in game three. So, you know, Kawhi being there obviously changes the math on a lot of that stuff. But in terms of like the the areas that we spotlighted that could ultimately prove to be the Suns undoing, whether it's in this round or later in the playoffs, shot profile, defensive rebounding, depth. The Chris Paul stuff that you mentioned, like his inability to be a consistent scoring threat, I think is going to be a problem at some point in the postseason. And we've already sort of seen that happen at points in this series. But
1: uh, what what among those things is worrying you most right now? The shot profile. And this is something I wrote about last week when I did. You had done the piece about um, like a concerning thing about the East's top four teams heading into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I did a similar piece for the West, one potentially fatal flaw for seven West contenders. I thought it ran that deep. But for Phoenix, and look, it's something you've mentioned before this season too, is their inability to get to the rim. That was before they got KD. So their shot profile, their inability to get to the rim is what worries me because look, I get the fact that what would be <clears throat> what would be a really troubling shot profile for the average team or even the average, a good team is a lot less concerning for the Suns who can make that shot profile turn into a scorching shot chart because they have Kevin Durant, Devin Booker, and Chris Paul, three of the greatest shooters, pull-up shooters, mid-range shooters we've ever seen. But you do have to be able to get the easy, like, easy stuff too. And the thing that I think makes the Suns unique is that It's not just their inability to get to the rim. It's also that they don't really balance it with three-point volume. It is so mid-range heavy. And even great shooters are going to have off nights. They'll miss three or four. Like, it's not... I don't care how good of a shooter you are. Even when you have Kevin Durant, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker, you're liable to some shooting slumps if you're relying solely or almost solely on mid-range jumpers. Like less than 26%, a league-worst 25.9% of Phoenix's field goal attempts came at the rim, and they were also bottom 10 in three-point attempt rate. And I know people might say, well, look, like the Warriors were a jump shot happy team. They won the title. They just won it last year. They finished close to the bottom in rim frequency last year. One, even the Warriors got to the rim more than 30% of the time last year. And two, the obvious answer to that is, they also are one of the greatest three-point shooting teams ever. And so, yeah, while they are a very jump shot reliant team, they are also benefiting from the extra value of three-pointers as part of that jump shot heavy shot profile. And the Suns don't really do that. So I just think as great as their mid-range shooters are and the fact that like no team could get as far as Phoenix can get with the same shot profile... It is still concerning and especially in the year 2023, it makes it so that you need to be nearly perfect in what you do to overcome some of the math issues and Chris Paul not being quite the same. Chris Paul is also part of that because he's not quite as automatic as he once was.
0: Yeah, although on the flip side, Devin Booker is like more automatic than... Dude,
1: he's been maybe the best player in the playoffs so far.
0: Well, I don't know about that. I, I would honestly, I would give that nod to Kawhi. I yeah, I know. Fair point. Him. I'd give it to Kawhi.
1: Um,
0: which is, yeah, I mean, look, if again, if he could come back and play the rest of the series, the Clippers have a fighting chance here. I think the defensive strategy, which is like they haven't deployed all the time, but like they started out the series going that way. And like, you know, they've shifted in and out of it at various points. But like having him guard Aiton and putting Zubach on Torrey Craig, who the Suns started, Like that sort of leads into my point about their depth and why that's maybe been the biggest issue to me. Torrey Craig's actually been awesome. I think he's hit like maybe, I want to say 10 threes through these first three games. So that has helped to make that strategy not as viable for the Clippers, but he's not going to keep shooting the ball that way. And I'm curious about this because their conundrum is like not that different from the Cavs conundrum in terms of that fifth starter spot. But they put Zubac on Craig Kawhi on Aiton that allows them to sort of switch the pick and roll actions with Aiton you know Aiton I mean we talked about how he doesn't play with enough force against like much smaller defenders even than Kawhi so I thought that was an interesting adjustment like having Russ guard KD for long stretches and obviously he's doing that with help but I can't say enough about how good Russ has been on this series especially on the defensive side of the ball like this is some of the best defense I've seen him play, period. Like, not just late career, but, like, his entire career. He's been so disruptive, playing with with so much focus and energy. I'm honestly shocked. Like, I watching Russ this series and how well he sort of fit in in L.A. Not L.A. in <laughs> With yeah. the Clippers yeah. <laughs> has been one of the joys of the playoffs so far.
1: Yeah. And I think the great thing with Russ when he is this locked in defensively, which this might be the first time he's ever been this locked in defensively, is that because he is still such an athletic freak, even at his age and with the miles on his body, he combines, like right now, he's playing just sound defense everywhere, right? But he combines that great sound, like positional defense with some really impressive and jaw-dropping defensive plays that you'll remember too. Like the end of game one, when he made that just insane defensive play on Booker at the end, like he's one of the few guys who can make those kinds of plays. Like the ability, like to get that block on Booker, to throw, to get to the ball first, after that, throw it off him. It's just, uh, it's entertaining to watch. And yeah, I'm with you. It's been one of the most pleasant, probably the most pleasant surprise of the playoffs so far is the ferocity with which Russell Westbrook is defending yeah. and how entertaining he's made that look. Uh, real quick note too, just on the what I was talking about with the shot profile. Unsurprisingly, obviously, uh, the Suns so far through three games of the playoffs, just like in the regular season, have the worst location expected effective field goal percentage. Not surprising again based on the shot profile. But, you, you know, you look at the other teams in that mix. It's like them, Miami, Atlanta, Chicago. It's it's teams without yeah. good offenses. And the Suns make it work because of who they employ. But at some point... Yeah, that, that
0: expected effective field goal percentage is just based on location and not taking into account the shooters who are actually taking the shots. So that's uh, not entirely representative of, like, the quality of shots for these particular Suns shooters, course. but... 54% of their shots so far in the series have come from either the short mid range or the long mid range. That's by far the most in the league. The next highest playoff team right now is Miami at 45%. But yeah, so I, I'm I'm curious to see like, can Craig keep playing as well as he's played shooting the ball as well as he shot it? Because on the whole, the the depth thing has like, e- even in game one, when the sun's lost their starters, when they were on the floor performed really well, but the bench kind of got clobbered like Booker was the only Suns player in that game who wound up with a negative plus minus, but that was basically because the Suns rolled out a lineup with him and four bench guys. And so I'm still concerned about that. I'm still, you know, maybe a little bit concerned about the shot profile stuff and, you know, the, the Chris Paul stuff, the defensive rebounding, like there are certainly areas that are meriting some level of concern for the Suns if we're thinking about them as a, a team with championship aspirations, or even a team like that's going to be able to get out of this round. If Kawhi can make it back and play the way he played in games one and two, like this is certainly not going to be any kind of walkover for Phoenix the rest of the way. But uh, yeah, that's, I I think that's all I have on that series for now. Do you want to close it out with just a few minutes on Nuggets Wolves?
1: Yeah, let's do it. Uh, Playoff Murray, you, you know, one of the most, we talked about how, Entertaining and pleasant it's been to watch Russell Westbrook defend. Really great to watch Jamal Murray on the offensive end. Uh his return to the playoffs for the first time in three years after you know the injury robbed him of the 2021 playoffs, and then he sat out all of last year. And playoff Murray is back at it again. Just looks like an absolute star with the ball in his hands, shooting the ball. Um, I had joked that, you know, if you remember back in the day when he he was just a prospect, Andrew Wiggins was referred to as Maple Jordan. And I was saying that playoff Murray is the real Maple Jordan because good Lord, he's been great. Um, I think Jokic has been great, but it also feels like he's just kind of been cruising. I know a lot of people will say, well, like, that's always what Jokic looks like. But I think especially in this series, it looks like like he still has a lot left in the tank if he needs to go to it. And it... uh, I don't know. It just seems like he's been able to cruise while Murray has killed it. And while the Nuggets have mostly kept the Wolves at bay, I know Minnesota did put a scare into them in game two, came back from the big deficit. Denver held them off. The Wolves, I mean, Gobert was in drop for a good portion of Murray, just absolutely torching them, which seemed a little ridiculous. He did start coming up a bit higher later, but it was probably too late by then. And I also don't know what else the Wolves can really do. Gordon, has been great. And especially in game two, filling some minutes as like the backup five, I think is a nice decision from Malone. Maybe speaks a little bit more to the backup center depth in Denver too, but also to Aaron Gordon's versatility and how good he's been. Uh, Anthony Edwards was great in game two. He's got that dog in him. Unlike the uh, Wolves other star, what, else, what other notes I have You, you want to jump in here at any time? Well,
0: I think so, like the the lack of good backup center option for Denver would be a lot more of an issue if Nas Reed was healthy. Like, I wish we got to see a, a fully healthy Wolves team. I still don't think they would win the series or, you know, necessarily even be able to make it a super long series. But like, I think it would be a whole lot more interesting, obviously, if the Wolves had their full complement of players. And them not having Nasreed off the bench to potentially punish that big vulnerability for Denver is, you know, sneakily a, a huge hindrance for them. And I mean, you got to shout out Ant Edwards who just had like a masterful second half in that game too. like really pulled the wolves back from the brink to get them to give them the lead. Honestly, I think they were down by as many as like 19 points. I want to say before he kind of pulled them back and spoke to the fact that like the, The Nuggets don't really have a great option for defending him or players of that ilk. They have Gordon, but they were using him to guard Towns. And I think that's a better type of matchup for Gordon. And in terms of like their wing defenders, it's like, you know, KCP is great, you know, at the point of attack and navigating screens, but he doesn't really have the size or the athleticism to deal with somebody like Edwards, you know, Bruce Brown. Isn't really tall enough, I don't think, for that matchup. Neither is Jamal Murray, and I felt like Edwards just really took advantage of that. Like he was just going through guys, shooting over guys, he was splitting double teams and getting to the rim. Like, I mean, his jump shooting was just really on another level, and it was it was fun to watch him take over that game. And then basically him and Murray go like tete a tete down the stretch. You mentioned how good Murray was. Like I, I can't remember who it was on the call for that game. It it was either Kevin Harlan or Ian Eagle, but whoever it was invoked the specter of bubble Murray at some point during that blistering fourth quarter run from him. And I honestly thought it was warranted. I mean, he's got to do it a few more times to actually prove that uh, he can still be that guy, but just to see him do it for a night on a game where he was really pushed by an equally scintillating guard on the other side was, was really fun to watch. But I just, sorry, go you want, you want to say
1: something? Oh, no, I was going to say Carl Anthony towns has uh 21 points on 29 shooting possessions and nine turnovers to four assists.
0: Yeah, so that that actually is the point that I was gonna make, which is, I mean, it's it's old news at this point, but it is what it is. It is what it is, man. Like towns against teams that are either switching, which the Nuggets did a bunch, or just putting a smaller defender on him. And Aaron Gordon is a freaking brick wall, right? Like it's not easy to post up Aaron Gordon, but It just, not that it needed to be hammered home for me, but like watching just the contrast in these two teams and how they utilize their two offensive fulcrums, it's like really stark. You watch the way that the Nuggets set up their offense and initiate possessions, getting Jokic to like his preferred spots. Every time down, it's like they're running that wedge screen and he's cutting through the paint and getting to like the opposite block and establishing position right from the jump. And there's just like very little of that with towns. Like so many of his post-ups are completely static. He's consistently catching the ball, like 20 feet from the hoop. And when that happens, like he's not able to generate enough of an advantage. Like it's really hard to back a guy down from that far away. And then you can try and turn around and face and maybe drive the ball or shoot over a guy. But like, that's going to lead to a lot of low efficiency shots. That's also going to lead to a lot of Carl Anthony towns turnovers because As great as his ball skill is for a player of his size, having a seven-footer try to dribble the ball from the three-point line to the rim is still a really dangerous proposition. And I just think he needs to work harder. The Wolves need to work harder to get him deeper touches if that's how they want to establish him. And if not, then just use him more in the pick-and-pop game. Have him spot up more. Have him attack some closeouts. Like, don't run your offense as much through him because it's not working. So that's that's where I'm at with Wolves-Nuggets, I think. The Wolves, well, I I can see them taking a game at home. Yeah, I, I think it'll be a gentleman's sweep. But again, I think this series will be a whole lot more interesting if they were fully healthy. I don't know. Like, one thing they tried to do, they tried to have, like, Towns take the Jokic assignment and have Gobert be the rover off of Gordon, which is a, a defensive tactic we've seen a lot of teams go to with some success this season. But it just didn't work. Eventually they had to just shift Gobert onto Jokic because Towns couldn't do it. And I wonder, you know, Jaden McDaniels doesn't really have the strength to do that in the same way that somebody like a PJ Tucker or OG Ananobi did it this season. But like, that would still be an option for them, I think, uh, in terms of like trying to junk things up defensively. Whereas Towns just kind of had no hope and they had to scrap that tactic pretty much right away. So just like another instance of how things could have been a little bit more interesting if Minnesota was healthy. But uh that's all on that that's all for this episode i believe i think we'll try to get a a couple episodes out again next week just in the playoffs so many things are happening and things are changing so fast that it it probably does behoove us to get multiple episodes out a week
1: but we'll see how that goes yeah and i think we can just do make or miss and the next found the next fan shout out on our next episode we already did it on uh tuesday i think with two episodes a week i think we can use one of the two to do make or miss and a fan shout out that works for me, man. Uh,
0: okay, so we'll leave you with that for the weekend. And uh, when we talk to you next, I'm sure all of this will have gone out the window. Everything will have changed. And that's what's so fun about the playoffs. We'll have a lot of new stuff to talk about. But for now, we're leaving you with this. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you all soon. For Joseph Cacharo, I'm Joe Wolf on Pound the Rock.